the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. Tuesday, September 19th, 2023. I am Seth Leapson. 602-508-0960 is the number. 602-5080-960. If you'd like to weigh in on anything or add something to the conversation, we've got Mr. Bill to my north. We've got David to my west and Terry to the east of him. Welcome to everybody. If there is one question I receive more than any other in talks, in emails, at events, it's how do you prepare for your show every day, or how long does it take you to prepare for your show every day? And I suppose the truest answer is about 50 years is the answer, just bringing everything I've experienced and learned over my life. Nothing more than that, really. Nothing any of you couldn't do. But there is another true thing that I want to convey, because maybe there's some good advice here. Everyone's always stressed out when they wake up, aren't they? Not everyone, but too many, a lot. Every morning early at 6 a.m. or so, I have a 30, roughly 30-minute call with a really good friend and mentor, and we talk about essays we've read, books, the news of the day, and kind of start our day on what you might call higher things. Yesterday, for example, we covered a little about Herman Melville, a little bit Hannah Arendt, some Leo Strauss, even some Bob Dylan, and a few others from the Western canon, all before 6.30 in the morning. And Maybe there's some advice there. Before you start your day in total earnest or your day starts you, put a little time on something not from the morning paper, but from, th- from something older or bigger or wiser, and turn it around in your head a little bit. Let it be part of the day you take with you. I really love what Leo Strauss wrote that is somewhat related and perhaps helps explain our crisis-infused times that we live in. Quote, the reading of the morning pay- prayer... The reading of the morning prayer has been replaced by the reading of the morning paper. Not every day the same thing, the same reminder of man's absolute duty and exalted destiny, but every day something new with no reminder of duty and exalted destiny. Specialization, knowing more and more about less and less, the practical impossibility of concentration upon the very few essential things upon which man's wholeness entirely depends— The specialization compensated by sham universality, by the stimulation of all kinds of interests and curiosities without true passion, the danger of universal philistinism and creeping conformism, close quote. Often those morning conversations with my my friend will give me an idea or concept for these monologues. And this morning we were talking about our culture and my usual concern about whether things actually matter anymore. Whether it matters that an incoherent man is our president, or an incoherent woman is our vice president, or that an incoherent man who cannot bring himself to put pants on represents the state of Pennsylvania and the United States Senate, so much so that the Senate changes its rules to accommodate him. Just a query on that, by the way. Do you think it was harder for Daniel Inouye, who lost an arm in World War II, to dress for the business of the Senate 
or less difficult than it is for John Fetterman to put on his pants? Or what of Bob Dole, who lost the use of his arm in World War II? Do you think it was harder for him to dress for the business of the Senate or less difficult than it is for John Fetterman to put on a collared shirt? There is a coddling of arrested development here, is there not? As Sagar and Jenny wrote, people who buck proper dress codes at the highest levels of public service are narcissists who think their personal comfort or brand supersedes decorum. They're not trying to relate. They think they're above everyone else. Scott Raines put it this way, we act as if dress isn't important, but what we wear isn't simply a matter of decorum. Rather, it reflects one's heart and metaphysical well-being. How one dresses the body mirrors the soundness of the soul and the mind and signals the respect for both the beauty of the world and those who live in it. How do you think John Fetterman's metaphysical well-being is? Well, we know now that during last year's campaign it wasn't good because several reporters were shamed into admitting they were covering up for his inability to understand their questions and their inability to understand his answers. I'd like you to engage a thought and visual experiment with me. Go to YouTube and watch a few minutes or more of Johnny Cash's concert at San Quentin, 1969. San Quentin housed the toughest of the tough criminal element in America. It's the toughest prison in America. And all the inmates, they were all dressed and comported better than John Fetterman is today. Is the Senate less important or requiring of less decorum than a maximum security prison? As Mr. Raines reminded, the philosopher Roger Scruton wrote that of the many problems of modernity, there is a desire to spoil beauty in acts of aesthetic iconoclasm. Wherever beauty lies in wait for us, the desire to preempt its appeal can intervene, ensuring that its still small voice will not be heard beyond the scenes of desecration. For beauty makes a claim on us. It is a call to renounce our narcissism and look with reverence on the world. In other words, this narcissism bows to something bigger, something larger, something greater than our own self-satisfaction and bucking of larger conventions. It is the triumph of the I or the me over the you and the us and the we— How does that work in a representative democracy, by the way, or in someone who is supposed to represent the we of we, the people? Reigns put it that the claim of beauty is a moral responsibility for ourselves and for our neighbors. For a U.S. senator, it is the claim of the virtue and intrinsic value of those whom he represents. Whether intentional or not, Fetterman's dress signals to the world that he cares nothing for the ideals of our national legislative bodies, let alone the people they represent. And Roger Scruton concludes, beauty is vanishing from our world because we live as though it did not matter. And we live that way because we have lost the habit of sacrifice and are striving always to avoid it. Vulgarity, as we've discussed, comes from the Latin aperocalia, a which indicates a negation of the word para, which stands for experience, and the word kalia, for something beautiful. Vulgarity is the lack of things beautiful. 
Do we sometimes worry just a little that we are entering a world or creating one that either doesn't care about beauty or rather cannot distinguish anymore between the beauty that puts books like Lawn Boy on the same par as books like To Kill a Mockingbird? That we can't distinguish between the two? The one that venerates adolescent same-sex sexual acts and graphic detail versus one that goes to human emotion, racism, judgment without examination, and the innocence of childhood? Can we not distinguish, say, between the works of Da Vinci and the works of Robert Maplethorpe? Or the music of certain songs that celebrate killing people and rape versus the songs of, say, anything from the 50s or 60s or 70s? Can we not distinguish between the rantings of Louis Farrakhan and the speeches of Martin Luther King or David Duke versus William Buckley? Can we not distinguish, should we not distinguish between the healthy attributes of, I don't know, Carrie Underwood or Beyonce versus, say, the body autonomy we're supposed to celebrate and cheer of a Lizzo? Do we just dispense with all standards to bend to the most vulgar now? And does it matter? Because that's the funny thing about standards. Sometimes we seek exceptions for ourselves, don't we? Another sign of narcissistic selfishness. As in the new dress code for the Senate. Because guess what? The lack of requirements for coats or collared shirts or ties and pants only applies to the senators. It doesn't apply to their staff. They still have to dress business-like. Just as we saw legislators maskless during COVID while their waiters and aides had to wear masks. James Madison put it in Federalist 57 that legislators shall, quote, make no law which will not have its full operation on themselves and their friends as well as on the great mass of the society, close quote. While dress codes may seem a small thing, To some, I think doing the business of America in the United States Senate is not a small thing, and that a law of decorum must abide for those senators, aides, and staff, who we almost never will see, and not to the senators themselves. I think that's a mark of something additionally unhealthy. I think normalizing the abnormal, as we have done in so many instances, I think claiming the emperor is well-clothed when he is naked, as we have done in so many instances, is getting us used to abnormal. And that itself is unhealthy for us all. I'm Seth Leibson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Are global leaders developing solutions that promote freedom and quality of life, or are they creating problems and forcing solutions that only benefit the elite? Midas Gold Group believes it's the latter, from draconian COVID restrictions, the decimation of small businesses, and changed election laws, which may have led to the Biden presidency. Midas believes your finances will be next. Under the guise of protecting you, you'll get monetary expansion, national debt, and reduced purchasing power, and their central bank digital currency will virtually eliminate your savings and purchasing privacy. The answer, convert a portion of your savings or IRA to physical gold and silver. Precious metals are a private currency, and they've been used to store wealth throughout history. Thousands of you have trusted the veterans of Midas Gold Group because they're fighting for your financial freedom and privacy. Give them a call today at 480-360-3000. That's Midas Gold Group at 480-360-3000. Or check them out online at MidasGoldGroup.com. MidasGoldGroup.com. I I don't know how much... um, 
of the United Nations uh, new session is going to be in the news over the next couple of days. In years past, it did dominate the news cycle. But I have to tell you, if Joe Biden was trying to accelerate the concerns and doubts of the fans in his party about his inability to continue to represent the United States of America, not only to the people of the United States of America, but to the United Nations, that is to say to the rest of the world, today was not a good day. Not at the General Assembly opening session. Gaff after gaff after incomprehensible garble after incomprehensible garble. Just like Mr. Johnson in Blazing Saddles. Um, you get this, for example. Now, realizing of all our institutions. Try that again. Now, realizing of all our institutions. It's, I know he's not drinking. I know he's not drinking. Now, realizing of all our institutions and drive creative new partnerships, let me be clear. And then he says, let me be Certain clear. principles of our international system are sacrosanct. I appreciate the effort for him to state, let me be clear. Um, we get things like this. For one day, for one day, my administration, the United States, has treated this crisis as an existential threat from the moment we took office. For one day, for one day, my administration, the United States, has treated this crisis, of course, he's talking about climate change, as an existential threat from the moment we took office. For one day. For one day, he assures us. If you go to the White House transcript, you know, at whitehouse.gov, where you get these speeches, it was kind of curious, interestingly enough. I have a lot of fun doing this when he gives speeches. It's not fun so much as sad and predictable. But you go to the whitehouse.gov website to what they call their briefing room online, and you can get transcripts of his speeches and Karin Jean-Pierre's press conferences and Jill Biden's and Kamala Harris's speeches. And they, they did not put up his United Nations speech for several hours. Until about two hours ago did they not put it up. They released excerpts of it well after it was delivered. And you know darn well, you know darn well, they had the transcript. They had the speech. So what was it that took so long? What do you think it was? Figuring out how to deal with these verbal lapses of his. So if you go, it's, it's a weird, weird thing. I've never seen anything like this before until this presidency. If you go to the White House transcript of his United Nations, United Nations speech, it has a line through what he actually said with what he should have said. So, in fact, at the White House transcript, it says, for one day, for one day, and then they draw a line through it and write, and write from day one, because that's, of course, what he meant from day one. John Hinderocker, um, over at uh, Powerline blog, picked up on another interesting gaffe here. 
Let's see if we can get to it. Uh, Bear with me one moment. Talking about climate crisis, because that's the biggest issue in the world to them, I suppose, and on how we're going to work with China on it. Someone needs to ask the Chinese their views of how excited they are to work on this. But here's Joe Biden. And it helps safeguard security and prosperity for decades. But we also stand ready to work together with China on issues where progress hinges on our common efforts. Nowhere is that more critical than accelerating the climate crisis. You like that? Nowhere is that more critical than accelerating the climate crisis. He wants to accelerate the climate crisis. He goes on. Then then the accelerating climate crisis. Fix it. We see it everywhere. Record-breaking heat waves in the United States and China. Wildfires ravaging North America and Southern Europe. A fifth year of drought in the Horn of Africa. Tragic, tragic flooding in Libya. My heart goes out to the people of Libya that's killed thousands, thousands of people. Now, the problem here is a lot of this is just mythical, as John Hinderocker puts it. Aside from thinking that we should be accelerating the crisis, speaking of those record-breaking heat waves in the U.S. and China, along with wildfires in America and Europe, John writes, globally, wildfires are at an all-time low. In the few areas where they have spiked, like California, it's the environmentalists who are to blame. They insisted on abandoning sound forest management practices that have reduced wildfire acreage to a fraction of what it was pre-Columbus. And there are no record-breaking heat waves. Summers get hot. There is just record-breaking yammering about heat waves, which is driven by political and financial self-interest. So to the degree that we may not see much out of the General Assembly's meetings today and speeches today, I'm going to guess it's because they don't want to highlight much of how Joe Biden performed. That would be my guess. President of Iran, Raisi, was a big story speaking at the United Nations today. He'll head, by the way, Iran will head of one of the Human Rights Commissions this coming session because words mean things. There were some protests about him. I still don't understand why we give him landing rights. I honestly don't. In a better and stronger day, we didn't give landing rights to people that engaged in slaughter and terror. Go back and look at 1983. Go look at what Mario Cuomo and Tom Kane as governors of New York and New Jersey did in not allowing the Soviet Union landing rights at their airports. Oh, the Soviets complained and threatened to leave the United Nations over it. Deputy U.N. Ambassador Charles Lichtenstein gave a wonderful speech on that very point, and he said if the delegation from the Soviet Union decides to leave this property on United States soil, we'll stand on the dock and wave them upon farewell. They never left. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. John Dombrowski brings us our culture and economy update. He is the president and founder of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. GrandCanyonPlanning.com is his bright and fun website and a good way to learn more about Grand Canyon Planning Associates and a good way to reach out to him. How are you this Tuesday, John? Fantastic, Seth. How are you? I'm doing fine. 
you said you wanted to talk about something fun today. And I don't yeah, know I was, if, hope, if I was you, hoping that you, yeah. you had something you exciting. I, you thought I might have yes, something fun. because you're always talking about fun <laughs> I'm not. Stuff. Today is not one of those days. <laughs> I'm sorry to say. I well, don't have a lot of fun. I will say this, though. I have been – I don't know if, if, you, if you get a lot of this, John. I'm, I'm suspecting you do, both from your clients and, and, yep. and people you know. Uh, career advice, you know, when college students are just starting off in their careers. Yeah. yeah. Had and a conversation a lot of today with a client about you, that. You yeah. had that just today. It's a yeah. lot of fun, isn't it, yeah. talking through it yeah. with these young young, uh, young adults. And interesting, Wall Street Journal had a piece, I don't know if you saw it, five books to read if you're thinking of changing careers. Hmm. I didn't know three of them, which mm-hmm. is no surprise. It's not my genre. But it was good to see that two of them have been around for a long time and are still holding steady and being recommended. One of them is The Road Less Traveled by Scott Peck, MD. That's been around mm-hmm. forever. Yep. The other, you've probably seen, it's been around for even longer, What Color Is Your Parachute? And um, one of the interesting things about What Color Is Your Parachute, it must have gone through 30 printings. It must have, or, or more. Uh, written by Richard Bowles. Mm-hmm. Guess what? His brother was Don Bowles, the reporter from the Arizona Republic. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just kind of a little local connection yeah. there. You know, it is interesting, too, Seth, when you have uh, you know parents today wondering about their kids, what, yep. what, what they're going to do, what career path they're going to choose. Yep. Um, and the question is, is do they go to college? Do they sure. try to you know become an apprentice and try to learn a trade? Yep. Uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, people out there in the trades that are earning a tremendous amount of money today. Mm-hmm. Uh, that don't have a college degree. Yep. And uh, again, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, everyone has their own path in life. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you're a hard worker and you're willing to listen and learn, uh, there are a lot of great areas of, of this economy that need good, skilled people. Uh, and, you know, today you can make a lot of money. Look at these uh, the United Auto Workers yeah. right now, what they're, what they're doing, right, yeah. as we talked about the strike. I mean, this is something they're asking for a tremendous amount of increase in pay. Uh, they do get paid, you know, I, there's different levels. I'm not 100%, you know, uh, understanding all the different levels that these people get paid. But, um, you know, even someone who works in the auto industry yep. like that, you yep. know, manufacturing, I mean, yep. Uh, you know, over the years, these people who contribute to their retirement accounts or pensions and different things that some of these uh, industries offer to their employees uh, ultimately do very well over long periods of time if you can, again, be very wise with your money. I don't know if you agree with this or not, uh, but a piece of advice I give is to young adults, those you know just entering the workforce or just getting out of college, tends to be more of the latter because, mm-hmm. you know, just – they 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 end up graduating in humanities degrees and then they come and right. say what do I do now uh, to me people who graduate high school and don't go to college because they know a trade they don't need my advice but I tell the humanities graduates just take any job that looks like it's something you can afford to take mm-hmm. learn how to work yep. learn how to get along learn yeah. how to get along with people learn how to t- get a skill in a workplace environment learn how to take on responsibility, learn how to show up, because that job, no matter what, it's not going to be your last job. No, my gosh, of but course not. get the and, skill and no. of learning how to actually work and get along with people. You know, my first job was in a mailroom. 
And there you go. My first job was just working in my father's store, yeah. uh, just, uh, you know, talking to customers. And, uh, you know, so it was it was good, good way for me to gain a rapport with people and get, learn how to deal with people. You know, today, Seth, people are being asked to come back to work, to back to the office instead of working remotely. And a lot of people are in for a little bit of an eye opener right now. Things are changing. You know, you don't have the freedoms maybe that, that you had over the past couple of years. If you're raising children, you know, if one of them were sick, you were able to stay home with them, of course, because you're working from home. But uh, those things are changing. And um, a lot of my clients who have been working remotely are telling me, hey, I'm going back to work. They're asking us to be there three, four days a week. And boy, I didn't realize how hard it is uh, to do that. And so... Um, but you're right. I mean, working in an environment with people, just to learn how to communicate, how to deal with people, how to solve challenges you have with people. These are all things that are going to help you forever in Mm -hmm. your life and Mm -hmm. you'll be able to grow. And if you can get through these early years of your working career, you certainly can uh, be very successful in the long run, and yep. that's what's what we're talking about. Good work, John. Let's talk you more bet. about this, too, over time. Yeah, Securities yeah. and Advisory Services offered through Creative One Securities LLC, a member of Finman Sipkin, an investment advisor, Green King and Plenty Associates LLC, Creative One Securities LLC, and not affiliated. Thank you, Seth. Thanks. I am Seth Leapson, 602-5080-960. Be right back. Have a seat. Put on some headphones. We're live. <laughs> Why not? Hugh Hallman, it's great to see you, brother. You're going to be joined by some colleagues in a little bit at the top of the next hour. I'm glad you got here early. That's a smart-looking shirt. How are you, man? You're making up for the fact that uh, I've lost my uh, monopolized hour with you uh, in the day. So. Well, we're going we're gonna to have two other people join you, but expand to to the hour. So, yeah, go so, ahead. And you did your monologue since I, I did the monologue. was stuck yes. in a meeting and yes. did not get yes, to listen. Yes, yes. So decorum. I want to talk. I'm, it's more than decorum. It is the value of culture and the, the, the import of what makes a culture. Yeah. The, the threads of the fabric of our culture have been torn asunder. We are losing important issues and ways in which we carry ourselves. The monologue is brilliant. Yes, I got to read it in advance, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> if you did not hear it, listen to the sultry tones of Seth's voice as he, <laughs> as, he, <laughs> as he gives you the monologue. But the, the point would be this, that the monologue, I think, really tears open the, the heart and soul of the fact that we have abandoned important issues in our society that make up what our culture is. We have eliminated all standards. We have decided that inclusion means accepting anything. And I think it is your debate with me on this subject, the notion of libertarianism that is underlying all of that. Mm. And it is a warped sense of libertarianism. It is not the libertarianism that gave voice to our country in the notion that life, liberty, and property, those three elements are the libertarian ethos, and that it is the failure to recognize that one can argue, for example— that being a meth addict out on the street is a victimless crime. That is to say that only the person who is taking the drugs is damaged. And that is a lie, an absolute lie. Not only are all of their family and friends uh, destroyed in many instances, but our society is undermined as well. Not just because as you drive down the street, you see these homeless encampments, the filth that has been caused. But every one of those people draws down resources from the society. As I would not be a slave, so I would not be a master, says Abraham Lincoln. And on what grounds, 
boy, have I gotten passionate about this fast. On what grounds do their rights to become drug addicts cease because they are no longer just impacting their own lives? They are demanding that I now contribute to that activity by paying taxes to a system that is broken, where we've got uh, people running around in our major cities uh, undertaking what they call harm reduction by handing out drug paraphernalia and sometimes even chemicals to these people because they believe that that's the right way to approach it. I tell you nonsense. And why am I so passionate about that? Because in the next two hours, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to hear from... Six of us? Uh, you and Jeff and Steve. Smoke, four of us. Yeah. And me. And you. And you count too, four, Seth. Yes. You're, you're probably, somebody. you're not only somebody. <laughs> you may be one of the leading experts in this field. And what we are talking about is drug addiction and our efforts to start preventing it. Because we have watched the needle go from uh, agreeing that it is wrong to uh, enable people to become drug addicts all the way over to let's help them continue in that lifestyle because we don't want to be judgmental about their decision to become a drug addict. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the kind of nonsense that is captured in your monologue, and I'm glad I got an opportunity to say that. Well, gosh, thanks, Hugh. I mean, I don't you, – you always – Overwhelm me, not well, but overwhelm me with with compliment, but also make make my with points. personality is yeah, what he's really. I, I've yeah, no, entered make, the room and destroyed everything. Yeah. No, but you make my point a little bit sharper. Or our points sharper on this. There's a narcissism to it too, isn't there? Um, there's a narcissism that someone can't bring themselves to comport with the general rules. One might even say manners. You know, old school conservatives like yourself, I think it's fair to say, are huge fans of Edmund Burke. If you look to the English tradition of conservatism. And I think one of the most important observations he ever had was in his uh, first letter uh, to the, uh, on, on, on the regicide, where he said, and I have it here, I keep it open all the time, because it's a good reminder for me, too. Manners are more important than laws. Upon them, in great measure, the laws depend. The law touches us here and there, and now and then. But manners are what vex or soothe, corrupt or purify, exalt or debase, barbarize or refine us by a constant, steady, uniform, insensible operation like that of the air we breathe in. They give their whole form and color to our lives. According to their quality, they aid morals, they supply them, or they totally destroy them. That was your point that you opened with about how you build a common culture, right? How we get along with people and the rules we're supposed to live and abide by. And you're absolutely right. You take San Francisco as an example as maybe one of the ground zero or the testing ground for this notion of victimlessness. They had to spend $1.1 billion on the homeless issue. They are spending six-figure salaries on people to clean up human excrement. They are... I don't know that that's no paying somebody zone. enough. It may not given be. what you have to do. But I yes. know. I, but it is coming out of yeah. other taxpayers that's in order right. to service this industry now that's been created. Another crisis industry that has fomented. And you had a guest on uh, a while back from the Portland or Seattle who had worked in this. Uh, oh, Portland, spe- right? Yeah, yeah, Doug. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. About the fact that these become industries. Dahlgren, sorry, Dahlgren, Ken Dahlgren. Yeah, that they have the people involved lose the incentive to actually solve the problem because it would put them out of business. Mm-hmm. Right. That is a terrible problem we are facing in in a society in which yes, the capitalistic system works. 
within some boundaries in which you recognize that if the government is handing out money, you must have constraints on how that money is spent. It was our founders who understood that we should not be subject to a government that takes from one to give to another, that the laws that would be passed would be equally applied to the, uh, those passing the laws and their friends, just as to everyone else. And yet you point out in your monologue, it's interesting that senators now are exempt from a dress code while their staff are not. And, and we don't see their staff, of but course we do not. see the senators. It's just so Some weird. Some without pants. Yeah, it's so weird. And I, I, I would like Chuck Schumer to be asked this question because he served with both of them, and he's the one who passed this new rule. Do you truly think it's more difficult for John Fetterman to put on pants than it was for Bob Dole to tie a tie who lost— the use of his arm in World War II, or Daniel Inouye, who lost his arm in World War II to put on a suit? I'll give you one from our neighborhood. It took them hours to do it. They thought it was important. John McCain, whose arms were broken and badly damaged and never healed properly. If you ever spent any time watching him, you would see how he had to hold himself and and difficulty walking. And he dressed himself and did it for exactly the same reason. Couldn't comb his hair. Correct. That's right. I mean, not, not without... Not without the use of help and assistance, the way Bob Dole had a device to exactly. tie his tie, exactly. and whatever it took for Daniel Inouye to do his his deportment. People deportment. always surprised that Bob Dole wouldn't shake their hand. That's and, right. And anybody who paid attention, he carried a pen in his right hand all the time. That's right. And it was to make sure people understood that hand is busy because he couldn't use it. Yeah. yeah. And yet we have a rule specially set for somebody who clearly has used every. Uh, democratic system, and I use that as the large D Democratic Party system, to take advantage of it for himself. And I think illegal substance, too, by the way. I mean, the guy is just a mess, a narcissistic man-child that society is comporting to accommodate him rather than him learning to accommodate us. Okay, you want a little Mangione on the way out? We'll give you a little Mangione. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, portions of which are brought to you by the great people at Y-Refi. They're headquartered here locally on Scottsdale Road in the 101. They invite you to stop by. You won't get a sales pitch or asked to be asked to sign anything. Um, they leave the selling up to me. It's an investment in a portfolio that is both secure and collateralized, where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like, and get this freedom. No loss of principal, no penalty if you need your money back at any time. And it's a portfolio that's not correlated to the stock market or the Federal Reserve if you're worried about stock market volatility or inflation. With Y-Refi, you can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return, a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or give them a call at 888-YREFI24. That's 888-YREFI24. At the top of the next hour, I'm going to be joined by uh, some more colleagues, joining Hugh Hallman, who just walked in. I'm going to be joined by all of whom have been regular, uh, have had regular appearances on this show. Uh, Steve Moak Jr. Uh, will be in studio with us, as will our good buddy Jeff Taylor, joining Hugh. And we're going to talk about, uh, well, one of the bigger problems that we think we have an idea on how to tackle with regard to what Hugh was talking about in the previous segment. Uh, The drug uh, poisoning problem in this country, the drug addiction problem in this country, 
uh, we think we're going down the wrong road, and we think we have a way to reverse it. Uh, and we're going to talk, talk about that at the top of the next hour, and happy to take your calls as well. Uh, Hugh, any other thoughts you wanted on this kind of culture of narcissism? That was kind of the that was kind of started in a big way in the 1970s when you were stalking high school grounds, right? I mean, we had the me decade that Tom Wolfe wrote about, and then Christopher Lash at the end of the decade of the 70s started talking about the culture of narcissism. That's really what it was about, the I and the me replacing the we and the you, huh? And the failure to recognize that in making that replacement, we have burdened our society and all others in it with the obligation to carry that. We're seeing that in the most recent policy debate over Uh, forgiveness of student loans. And it's easily said this way. If your undergraduate degree wasn't worth you paying for it, why is it worth my paying for it? That's right. That's exactly right. And that's the the same problem we're seeing across the board. And with drug addiction and drug poisonings, it is a piece that we have people who have been given the freedom to exercise their will to become this way, and now their burdens are imposed on all of the rest of us. And for that reason alone, we all ought to engage to stop it. Well, we're going to have a a really wide-ranging discussion on it, and not just just a criticism of the situation, but a shining of the light with an idea that a few of us have come up with, uh, three of you in this room, two others outside this room who couldn't be with us today. You're leaving yourself out. And I as well, me as well. I'm trying not to do the me and the I, I and me. Yeah, yeah okay. right, right. Well, as, as they say, it's team a, is not spelled with an I. That's right. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.